1982, China made a colossal mistake, and that was instituting the one-child policy. They turned back on that mistake in 2016, but it might be too late as they are entering population decline come 2025, and by the year 2050, 30% of their population will be over the age of 60. This dooms pretty bad for China because their economy could very well collapse due to there ain't no people to keep it running. But the question is, is the West making a very similar mistake when it comes to the blessed religion of environmentalism, which we've been touching on a little bit recently? The question is, is the cure worse than the disease? Is the the, the synopsis of how to fix this disease, is it actually wrong? And what happens if we get it wrong, just like China got it wrong all those decades ago, and they're going to now pay for it in the coming future. They already paid for it in the past with the, the loss of millions and millions, if not hundreds of millions of lives lost to these brutal population control policies. And finally, on today's episode, we talk about a hero, a hero that we should stand up in front of all of our sons and our daughters to point to and say, this is a man, a person that you should aspire to be like. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue the truth, and own the future. Thanks so much for being with me on the show today. We are an independent show. We don't have big money from MSNBC and CNN and Facebook that's that's pushing out and pumping the propaganda through your pipes. No, we're an independent show. If you have been enjoying this episode, if you find it helpful and fruitful, I would ask you to support the show in one of two ways. You can go over to the website, lucasscrobot.com, and you become a, a donor to the show and give to keep this show on the air and going, you can buy my book, Anchor the Discipline to Stop Drifting, or you could stream this show on the Breeze app and you can top up your Satoshi's wallet and you can stream and, and give a couple cents for each minute that you listen to the show as you listen to the show. Now, back to today's episode. I was talking with a friend earlier this week his, who's been on the show a couple times before. His name's Chirag. And we were talking a couple months ago about what's happening in India, what's happening in America with Section 230, with Article 79 in India, and the control that these massive tech companies have over the propaganda, over the communication, over the information that's flowing to each and every one of us. In that conversation, and in subsequent conversations after that, I've begun to re realize something. Maybe, maybe I'm a little late to this party. And, you know, send me a message and, and let me know if I am late to this party. But I realized this week that we are in a, a full-blown war. We are in a war. I was talking to Chirag, and I, and I asked him, Chirag, am, is it just that I'm getting older and I'm becoming more aware of what's going on in the world, or is everything just really crazy right now in the world? And I know, I know Rodney showed up last year. You know, Rodney, 2019, 
really ruined our lives in 2020. Rodney, that's what I'm calling. I'm calling it these days. Rodney, Rodney showed up and I understand that had a big, big thing to play with it. But it seems like in the last few years, there has just been this heightened intensity. And we were discussing how in the 90s, there were still media controlling narratives, um, newspapers controlling narratives. And now in the in the 2000s, we have social media. And we at one point had this really decentralized communication platforms where you could reach anyone. And now those gatekeepers are coming back in and trying to tighten up the communication chain and control the narratives a little bit more. But regardless of narrative control, I think there's something much larger going on. And I think it maybe a war is, you know, I don't want to hyperbolize too much and be like, this is our World War Three. Okay, it's not our World War Three, but but history does rhyme. And a lot of the rhyming that I hear is very similar to what was happening in the in the gulags of USSR where the the wildest double talk sort of things were being pushed out into the world. People were getting canceled and doxxed and arrested. And we're not quite seeing that yet. We're not seeing a full-on governmental totalitarianism, even though some nations, um, expressively Australia, has been really impacted by this, by Rodney in 2020. Some of the videos that you probably have seen floating around on the internet are quite shocking that people are getting arrested. Police are coming into their homes, arresting them because they posted about that they're going to go to something. They posted something on Facebook, say, I'm going to go to this event and they get arrested. It's just, I mean, it's crazy. I feel like I'm going crazy and we really, we really are in a war. And as this shadow of Mordor begins to creep over all of our lands, over all of our minds, again, it's not a, a hard totalitarianism, but it is more of a new totalitarianism, a, a soft totalitarianism. And it's not just happening in America. It's happening globally. It's happening across Europe, massively, massively across Europe. It's happening in Africa. It's happening in Australia, in Asia. There's these, these massive battles over our minds, over the things that we think, over the way that we organize and connect with our community. And I think that begs something of us. I think it commands something of us to, to stand up and be leaders in our community. I don't necessarily think that the world is looking for leadership. I think the world by and large is following uh, very acceptingly and willingly to the leader's that are, are pushing their agendas. But I think the ones and twos around us or the communities around us, the families around us, they're looking for leaders, for people to stand up and organize and encourage and connect. And that is someone that you are. That is someone that you could be, that you should be. In whatever capacity you are able to be, to be a strength and a source of encouragement to people around you. And we're going to get to that point even a little bit more at the end of this episode as we tell this heroic heroic story of a young man named Jimmy but before that i want to touch on what is what is spreading this soft totalitarianism this new totalitarianism across the globe and of course rodney has a big part to play with it 
And I have a lot of empathy for nations that have different societal makeup, that have different health problems that they need to take care of, that they need to uh, be cognizant of. So I don't necessarily think that it is a, a cookie cutter, one shape fits all for Rodney. And I, I don't think that it's a hoax. I don't think that it's just made up. I think it's real. I think we need to take the proper precautions. But that those proper precautions and the, the power that we are ceding to those who have been placed in authority over us, we need to balance that with the question of how much power do we really want to hand over? How much of our liberties and our freedoms do we want to give over? Because maybe the people who are in power now have our best in mind. But what happens in 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now when there's a change and now there's legislation in place and there's culture in place and cultural norms in place where this isn't the case? So Rodney has been a big push. We're not going to be focusing on the Rodney today, but instead I want to focus on another lurching shadow that is stretching across our hearts and our minds, and that is, as I mentioned, environmentalism. Now, with, within the guise of environmentalism, we've touched this on a few times, there is a huge push of policy specifically from the UN to actually stunt and halt developing countries from developing. This is as Austin Williams, I came across this article on Spiked Online, which is a UK online paper. Austin William, Williams talks about neo-colonialism and how it's gone green. The West is using climate change to hold the developing world back. We've talked about this previously on the show, that climate change, climate activism, the policies being pushed forth are really means to control developing nations, really means to push developing nations and slow them from developing so that those people who are in power can remain in power. And it's coming at the cost of the poor. It comes at the cost of high electricity, which slows the development of the most impoverished people. And as people come out of poverty, they actually hear more about the planet naturally. So what Austin writes about in this article is he quotes Alok Sharma. She says, one of my top priorities is to champion global action for vulnerable countries on the front line of climate change. And this is the UK's former business secretary and now the COP26 president. These are grand words, Austin writes, but they lie with a murky reality. The vulnerable countries, which Sharma speaks of, are poor sovereign states that have been screwed for decades. Governments and organizations like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank have been screwing them for decades. And they're going to get screwed again by these same institutions, but this time it's in the name of saving the planet. Austin writes that back in the 1980s, global institutions like the IMF provided financial aid to developing countries on the condition that they changed their economic policy, reduced inflation, devalued their currencies, and so on. These so-called structural adjustment programs imposed imperialist-style dictas on the way that these heavily indebted countries were allowed to develop. And it forced them to restrain internal demand and shift production 
according to the priorities of the external markets and impose policies that would provide handsome return to their aid givers. Now, the IMF and the UN and these non-elected bodies are no longer telling subservient nations how they should develop. Instead, they're nudging them and nudging developing countries to consider whether they want to develop or at all in the name of environmentalism. And they're encouraging developing nations to stay where they are, undisturbed by anything as alien as economic progress. In the Western circle, the idea of development has long been betrayed as a bad thing. Currently, people are portraying development as actually maldevelopment. Development is actually colonialism in disguise. A lot of my friends talk about decolonizing their mind, decolonizing their bookshelf, do away with capitalism, decolonize your mind from anything that might push you to have a greater economic impact in the world around you because that's all colonialism and you need to break free from that. Not realizing that it's colonialism or maybe better put, not realizing it's capitalism that has enabled people to have the free time, the luxuries, and the long life that they enjoy in nations that have developed or are quite on their way into developing. Now, this maldevelopment that the West has undergone is being painted as so horrible. And those in the UN are pushing to these other nations that have not developed saying, don't make the same mistakes as us. Don't develop your nations. It's not as all it's cracked up to be. Back in 2012, the UN complained that more donors were more often prioritizing development-orientated projects and not sustainable development governance. So the UN has begun to urge donor agencies to focus on the environment, sustainability, development, and climate change. The aid has shifted away from helping people and developing their nations to let's help the climate rather than developing nations. Let's make sure that we preserve your ecosystem rather than preserving the human life. Austin goes on in his article and says the UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs is even encouraging underdeveloped nations to move beyond GDP as a measure and to embrace natural capital, which means that decrepit infrastructure and low-cost productivity can be balanced against the amount of forest coverage and carbon sinks that a nation has. So a nation that has very low GDP, that's really not growing, that has a lot of developmental issues, well, if they have a great forest, maybe a really nice beach, well, that can offset their GDP, and they're creating a new measurement, which call is called the GDP, or the Green Gross Domestic Product, as a useful measure of economic growth with the environmental costs and services factored in. For example, a nation's GDP monetizes biodiversity and encourages developing nations to become stewards of their environment rather than spoiling it with factories, housing, and other signs of development. Bill Gates even suggested that we should pay countries to maintain their forests. This effectively means bribing countries to stand still in order to, quote-unquote, save 
the planet. As far as the West is concerned, if climate change is the issue that can bring even China to its heels, writes Austin, then imagine what it can do to impoverished countries with no power, no reserves, and just trees. Now, it's, I'm grateful that people want to steward the environment. I, I think that stewarding the environment is a good idea. I don't think that we should be not stewarding the environment. I don't think we should just plow down Yellowstone Park. I don't think we should just destroy our beaches and just dump toxins, toxins into rivers and throw plastics into oceans. I, I don't think that. I don't. I think that's ridiculous. I think we need to be good stewards of our environment. But I think there is a fine line become from be, being a good steward of the environment and being a non-steward of the environment. We're saying instead of using the resources around us to steward the people in our nation, we are going to, at the cost of the people in our nation, preserve the environment and not develop our nation as it should be. And these costs are, are being transferred to the poorest people, not the middle class, not the wealthy, but the poor. The poor of the poor are paying the price in this, this economic, non-economic push, this green new deal, this global greenery and environmentalism. It all falls on the poor. But are we making a mistake? Are we making a mistake like China, where we might invest all of our money into the wrong thing, only to wake up 30, 40, 50 years from now and realize that we made a mistake, to realize that we didn't incentivize the right industries, that we didn't build the right infrastructure, that we didn't invest in the right areas. Here's a clip of Bjorn Lombard, who is a economist and is a studies climate change, and not only studying climate change, but studying what is the best way to tackle climate change on a recent interview with Jordan Peterson. Are we spending lots of resources doing not very much good for climate when we could spend those resources and do much, much more for the whole world with its many, many other problems? The world spends about $150 billion on all the big problems in the world, from peacekeeping forces to dealing with malaria and tuberculosis to uh, HIV to education to gender equality to many, many other problems. But we spend in the order of $400 billion or more per year on climate change. If you look at the money we spend on doing good in the world, the vast amount of that money goes to climate change. If we get it wrong on climate, we're really getting it wrong on how we tackle the world's big problems. You point out in the introduction, for example, that the cost of climate change interventions often involve an increase in energy prices, and that increase in energy price falls most heavily on the poor. You make a credible case, a strong case, that much of the climate change intervention, as currently conceptualized, is going to further impoverish the poor. I'm going to read something from the UN Climate Panel you quote in your book, for most economic sectors, the impact of climate change will be small relative to the impacts of other drivers, such as changes in population, age, income technology, relative prices, lifestyle, regulation, governance, and many other aspects of socioeconomic development. 
The issue is not, ah, screw the climate. The issue is that there are actually many other factors, social, social factors, population factors. There are many other factors that go into what is impacting the climate. It is not a single variable problem. It is a multivariable problem that re- involves a multivariable analysis. And what I love about Bjorn and his work is that he approaches it from a cost-benefit analysis. He approaches it from a risk-benefit analysis, and he looks at the money. He looks at the dollars. He looks at the math, and he says, where can we invest our dollars that we have to spend on this project, on the globe, in the best way that we can to have the most amount of impact to ensure that our future will look brightest? How can we do that? Where, Where do we put our money? And what Bjorn is saying is, right now, we're making this big, big gamble. And we're not betting on our human infrastructure. We're not betting on in helping humanity, helping the impoverished and pulling them out. We're not doing that. We're focusing on green energies like solar panels and wind energy or, or hydro energy, which is actually just as damaging to the environment, if not more in some ways. We're just changing language and we're saying, oh, well, it's biofuel. As we cut down trees, ship them across the oceans from America and from Southeast Asia to be burned in the UK, and I believe 40 or 60% of the the, the bioenergy of the UK and of, of Denmark and of much of the EU is actually burning wood from trees. I mean, how crazy is that? We just talked about this a few episodes back. That is is mind-boggling to me. All they do is just flip a word. And this is what the the postmodern deconstructionists like to do. It's brilliant marketing. Oh, burning trees, we'll call it biofuel. (laughs) Okay. Okay, now we're burning trees. I thought we're supposed to be saving the rainforest. But his point is, we're spending all of this finances, all of this money. And what happens if we make the wrong bet? Will we end up paying for it many years from now? Well, someone made a wrong bet before, and that was China. There was a man named Ma Yinchu, who was born in 1882 in China. He was the son of a small business owner. And he had the opportunity to earn an undergraduate from Tianjin University. And then he went on to study in Yale, earned a PhD, and he came back to China as a very sharp, politically astute um, leader, intellectual. And in the mid-1940s, that really didn't go well with China. So he spent a, a brief amount of time in house arrest before 1949 when Mao's People Liberation Army came and he was exalted as the prestigious president of the Peking University. Come 1957, Dr. Ma was invited to address the fourth session of China's first National People's Congress. During that time, he presented new population theory. He was saying and urging the government to control fertility to reduce population because of China's rapidly increasing population. He believed that it would hinder China's economic development. 
Ma told the Congress the state should have the power to intervene in reproduction to control population. Now, this in some ways sounds strangely familiar. It's not mainstream yet, but it is definitely lurking in conversations that I have. Conversations that I have that say, well, people really shouldn't be having kids. I mean, we have four kids, and when we are in the West, we're in the States, um, people look at us kind of funny. When my wife is walking through the grocery store, people are like, oh, did you did you mean to have that many children? No, I, I didn't mean to. They just happened. Yeah, we, we of course. But when you see that kids are blessings, or not blessings, but you believe that kids are burdens on the world rather than blessings, then of course you're, you're going to have this cynical worldview towards children. And many people that I talk to, they feel that having kids is not a good thing, that it's a burden to the world, that they'd be better off if they didn't have children. Well, Dr. Ma's idea back in 1957 didn't sit well. Some people thought that, yep, this is a great idea, but others in the party who really adopted these Marxist ideologies believed that the, the way to achieve the dictatorship of the proletariat was to have more and more workers, so they actually wanted a booming population. But as everything unraveled, in the 1960s, the party decided that Ma's idea about population was subversive based on a Western Malthusianism thinking and incompatible with Chinese socialism. So he lost all of his privileges and he disappeared for a number of years. Come 1966, we have the, the Chinese Cultural Revolution. During that time, tens of, tens of billions, millions and millions, perish in mass starvation, in mass killings, in mass purgings, in, in shaming sessions, uh, just a, a brutal time in history. And in 1973, as the Cultural Revolution continued, elements of the Chinese leadership began to come around to Dr. Ma's thinking that he presented all the way back in 1957. And the government began to adopt this ideology, which was marriage later, longer spacing, and fewer children. So get married later, have your kids further apart, and have fewer children which is something that we are seeing in Western culture today, which is causing a population drop. It's something that we're seeing, have seen in Japan today where they have negative population growth. And because of that, their economy is in severe trouble. So at that point in 73, they began to, to control and limit the amount of kids people could have to two children. In 1979, they moved away from the two-child policy and they adopted Dr. Ma's one-child policy when Dr. Ma was 97 years old. And they finally ratified in their constitution the one-child policy a few years later in 1982 when he was 99 and he died that year, Dr. Ma. Lewis March wrote in an article 
that this is one of the most successful coercive social engineering experiments in history. By the 1990s, China's fertility rate had fallen to 1.2. Millions had suffered untold heartbreak as government-mandated contraceptions and abortions were weaponized to enforce the one-child law. The sad side effects was sex-selective abortion, which has since been banned. Traditionally, Chinese sons were expected to support their parents in the old age, making male babies more desirable. Thus, in 2001, 117 boys were born for every 100 girls. In 2010, the BBC reported a 119 to 100 ratio, and in some rural provinces, the ratios were reported near 130 to 100, which is quite extraordinary. Now, now you have millions and millions of men who cannot find a mate, who cannot, there's, there's no one to marry because it's mostly boys, mostly men in your society. But this was all done away with in 2016 when the party line officially changed back to a two-child policy and families able to have a second child did so, raising the national fertility rate to 1.58. This was only temporary. China's National Bureau of Statistics reported a 1.49 fertility rate for 2018 and 1.47 for 2019. Lewis continues in his article to write that China is now an aging society as the percentage of elderly above the age 60 has surpassed the percentage of children aged 15 and under. The elderly percentage rose from 10.45% in 2005 to 18.1% in 2019. The government projects that by 2050, one-third of the Chinese population will be over 60 China's working age population has decreased well over 3 million people for each year in the last decade. In April 2021, People's Bank of China released a working paper calling for China to raise their fertility rates in order to maintain competitiveness with the United States. Quote, for China to narrow the gap with the United States in the past four decades, it relied on cheap labor and huge numbers of people. What will we rely on in the next 30 years? This is worth our thoughts. The article continued, quote, We should not hesitate and wait for the side effects of existing birth policies. The birth liberalization should happen now, when there are some residents who still want to have children but can't due to the two-child policy. According to this report, it says when the total population enters negative growth after 2025, there will be a shortage of demand. Beijing and China recognize the one-child policy was a colossal mistake, and they are going to pay for it for decades to come. Decades to come. It could cost them their supremacy in the world. It could cost them their power in the world if their population collapses. This could also very well happen for other societies in the West where we have begun to adopt ideas that are implicitly anti-human at the cost of, well, 
For China, it was at the cost of development. They're saying, we're going to not have babies because we want to develop as a nation. Instead, what the West is saying, we want to not develop as a nation because we want to have these green initiatives. And more importantly, they're saying, we don't want you to develop as a nation because we've already developed. We already have cheap energy. We already have infrastructure in place. We already have a middle class that could pay for this more expensive energy. But we don't want you to develop because it's what's best for us. It's what's best for the planet. The question that we are left with is, are we making the same mistake that China made all those decades ago? Are we adopting anti-human ideologies in the name of environmentalism? Are we saying to all these other countries with people who are living in poverty, with slow and growing GDP, with expensive energy, with little natural resources, are we saying to them, hey, don't develop your nation, don't grow your economy, hinder opportunities, stop development, because we want to save the nation. Are we putting our dollars in the right place? Are we going to get the best return on investment? As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, people around the world, individuals are looking for leaders. They're looking for community. They're looking for a tribe to be a part of. And you could be a person that brings people into that for your community. And one way that you can do that is by sharing this episode with them and having a conversation around it. Because if you listen to this again, if you have a conversation about this with friends, it's going to cause you to have a, maybe it's a hard conversation, but it's going to be an open conversation, one where you're forced to think critically. Maybe you walk away just thinking that I'm totally full of it and you totally disagree and that's okay. The, the idea here is that we would begin to use our critical thinking, our problem-solving faculties, and ask hard questions, ask stupid questions even, so that we can find out better answers, so that we can find out solutions that actually are going to get us to where we want to go. Because most of the time, especially when it comes to environmentalism, we don't want to ask the stupid question and say, wait, it, it, that solar panel that we can't put back into the ground that has cobalt in it that was mined by children from slave labor in the Congo, is that really the, the, the best way to solve this climate change issue? Is, is that really the best way? Wait, the, these windmills that take an enormous amount of energy to produce, which ruin habitats and then end up in landfills and barely paying for themselves, the only way that they're paying for themselves really is by subsidies, largely. Is that, really, is that really the best way? Is this really the best way to solve this impending doom of climate change? Or are there other things that we should be investing in that's going to have a greater return on our investment? Okay, don't go away. We're going to be right back with the story of Jimmy, uh, a hero in my mind, and someone that we should stand up as a hero in our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Well, 
Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destinies. And weaving our destiny means that we have, there is a plan. There is a purpose for your life that's divine and sacred, but it doesn't happen and it doesn't get woven unless you wake up every day, get out of bed and do something about it. Unless you are someone that stands up for your life and helps other people stand up, if we're not those people, then no one else is going to be those people. And so we have to do something to weave our destinies. And today we have a story that in my mind is someone who is a hero that we should all aspire to be like. And this is a young man by the name of Jimmy. His, his real name is Falad Jimmy Halubunmi Adewole. But he goes by Jimmy with his friends. Here's a picture of Jimmy, a young, young man in the UK. He's 20 years old. And this last Saturday night, he jumped into the Thames River at midnight to help a woman who had fallen in. His friend went in with him. The woman cried out for help. Help me, help me, I'm gonna die. Jimmy turned to his friend and said, look, we can jump in, we can find her. We can look for her. And he threw himself into the pitch black freezing river without hesitating. What happened next was a tragedy. The woman and Jimmy's friend were rescued by the Marine police, but Jimmy died. His father said, he is a very unique and angelic soul, and I'm proud of him. He is a hero, and he always will be. When I read this story, I was, I was blown away because here is a young man who didn't count his life as something to be held onto and grasp. He wasn't someone who's pushing into self-preservation, wanting to stay safe. He wasn't just pulling out his phone to film the incidents. He, he, he looked around and he said, look, there's someone that's drowning. What if we're the person that saves her? It might cost me my life, but I'm not going to hesitate. And right now, we, we have a society that is filled filled with putting people on these pedestals who are criminals, who are just, are just past and present in the moment that they died. We're filled with criminality. But we're setting them up to be heroes. We're setting them up to be heroes for our children. We're standing in their council, celebrating their lifestyle. We look across, we look across media and the arts and entertainment, and who we're celebrating, who we're promoting, who we're calling brave and valiant, and just, wow, the courage of that person to get applauded by all those at the Oscars for being celebrated for being trans. Wow, the courage that must have taken. But are we holding up in front of our children? Are we holding up in front of ourselves someone who lays down their life for a stranger, lays down their life for someone else? Today's quote comes from the Psalms, Psalms 1. Blessed is the man who walks not 
in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And I'm afraid that there is a generation that is being raised up that through social media and through the arts and entertainment and through, through Hollywood, their heroes are people who are walking in the counsel of the wicked. And, and we have a generation that is beginning to walk in the counsel of the wicked, a generation that is standing in the way of sinners, celebrating lifestyles of, of rape and debauchery, celebrating people who, who are walking into an ex-girlfriend's house, digitally raping them, cursing at them, grabbing their keys, walking out to the car, ignoring police officers, reaching for a knife, and end up getting shot seven times in the back. And, and, and getting calls from now the, the sitting president and sitting vice president of the United States. saying you're a hero. A hero. We celebrate. Why are we celebrating criminals? Why are we celebrating and putting on a pedestal and making saints criminals who are standing in the council of the wicked, a way of sinners, and sitting in the seat of scoffers? What sort of example are we setting up for this generation? Because the wicked will perish in their way, in the way that they're going. And what good is it? What good is it? Is if you're being persecuted and people are saying bad things about you and you're being punished for your wickedness. But then here is a man, here's a young man who, who gave his life for a stranger, who, who didn't worry about the fame, who didn't care about himself, but he thought of others. He laid down his life for a complete stranger. And that is something that I aspire to. That is a virtue of courage, of strength, that is rare to see in this generation. It's, it's a virtue. One that drove men to storm the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. One that caused men and women to stand for truth, even if it meant that they'd go to a gulag somewhere. It's this sort of virtue that caused St. Maximilian that when he was in Auschwitz, he volunteered to give his life for a complete stranger. The only time that that was recorded happening. And that is something that I aspire to, to live in such a manner that at the age of 20, being willing to put your entire life at risk to save someone else's. And that is what, and that is what we're here to do. To not count our lives as something to hang on to, to not count our, our, our lives as something to preserve. We're not after this self-preservation, self-importance. We're after servanthood. How can we serve people around us? How can we, as leaders, serve our community? 
in cir- circumstances where we probably won't get the recognition, where we won't get the praise, where we won't get our 15 minutes of fame, but we will be remembered by our children as someone who was brave and valiant and stood for truth, even in, even in the face of, of death. That we would be men and women who lay down our lives for someone else, even if it cost us our own, even if it was someone that we didn't know. Because very few people will lay down their life for a friend. And even less will lay down their life for a stranger. And so that's why, in, in my opinion, Jimmy is, is a hero that we should stand up for our children to look at as an example of a way to carry and live their life. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for being with me here today. Remember, you are someone who lays down your life for other people, a leader who serves others. So go out this week, discern the truth, pursue the truth, live the truth so that you can own your future.